Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Bill Howell. Thank you, choir and orchestra. Thank you, Dr. Wills, for your prayer. And thank you, Pastor Drew, for the uh, kind, um, unexpected invitation to be able to, uh, to preach at, uh, at our home church on uh, the Lord's Day. And certainly we do add our uh, family's prayer for Drew and especially for Haley as she's recovering from uh, COVID-19, for all the Erickson family. It is a joy every time I have the chance to, uh, to worship here at our home church. Uh, it's two and a half years this week that I have been fortunate to be the president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, it was not long after our family came here that uh, God led us to make Travis Avenue our family's church home. And I love our church. Uh, I love what the Lord is doing here. Now, as president of Southwestern Seminary, I'm thankful for all the churches that help uh, invest in and support uh, our work. But uh, this is a special place. And uh, you have embraced uh, the Greenway family as we have embraced uh, you. And uh, I love what the Lord is doing in and through our church. I love our pastor, love our staff, and uh, I'm thrilled that particularly our children have the chance to know Travis Avenue as their church family and their church home. And it is a joy to uh, be here, it's certainly a joy to, um, to strengthen the longstanding partnership between Southwestern Seminary and Travis Avenue. Few churches have meant more to our seminary in its history than this church. And it means the world to me to be connected to both institutions and to continue to see the Lord strengthen both of our ministries as God gives us the grace and strength to, uh, to carry on. I hope that you do keep Southwestern Seminary in your prayers. We began our fall semester last week. We have formal convocation this Tuesday and we open the fall semester together. And uh, it is, of course, uh, an interesting time with all that is happening around us with COVID-19 and all of the issues there. We need to continue to pray for all of those who are on the front lines. And we need to pray for God to, in his own time and in his own way, to bring a swift and sudden end to this pandemic that has brought so much devastation and brokenness and hurt to so many. And uh, we are thankful for medical doctors and nurses and all the professionals out there. But we trust in Yahweh, our God, who is the great physician. Amen, amen. and amen. Second Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning in God's Word. Second Timothy 2, and uh, I'm preaching this morning on this subject, our motivation for the Christian life. Our motivation for the Christian life. You know, the fall... Uh, may be my favorite season of the year, not just because we get a break from the heat uh, of the summer, but the fall means other things uh, happen, not just the beginning of uh, school years, but uh, perhaps my favorite uh, recreational pastime, now I didn't play it because I'm not an athlete, I basically had athlete's foot and that was about it growing up, so I'm thankful my children have far more athletic talent than, uh, than their daddy ever did, but um, uh, it, it's preseason time uh, on the NFL level, and uh, this coming Saturday will be the first college game day on ESPN of the fall, which is a sign God loves us and all is getting to be right with the world once again. And uh, I love college football, and I love the fact that uh, as somebody who was born and raised in SEC country, I want to welcome all of my OU and Texas fans to the SEC uh, as it looks like what is happening uh, around us. 
But you think about what has been happening with training camps and other things where not just are they focused upon the X's and the O's and the plays and all those kind of things, but think about how much time is spent on the issue of motivation. Think about how many coaches bring in motivational speakers and gurus and experts to talk about team dynamics and having a winning attitude. You, you can just go online and look at the great coaches and who they bring in to speak to their teams about what happens before they ever take the field. Because in many ways, what happens in the locker room and on the practice field has great impact on what will happen when the lights come on on a Saturday night or when kickoff happens on a Sunday in the NFL. The issue of motivation is one that isn't just applicable in terms of the secular landscape, but it also has, I believe, great impact upon living what we call the Christian life. Second Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8, we'll go to verse 10. Let me just encourage you to follow along in your hearts as I share this word from God's word. And this morning I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. The Bible says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the word of our Lord, and thanks be to God. This morning, Paul here is writing to uh, Timothy. Timothy was, of course, uh, Paul's son in the ministry. He was, if you will, the young uh, lead teaching pastor at the First Baptist Church in Ephesus. And uh, Paul is writing to him, encouraging him and exhorting him about faithfulness and fidelity in ministry. And we know, of course, that Paul had a deep love for the church at Ephesus. He had commissioned those elders back in Acts 20 and given instruction to them about being on guard for the doctrinal integrity of the church and its vitality. He wrote an inspired letter to them there in the book of Ephesians. And he writes to Timothy not just one, but two pastoral letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, to really speak into Timothy's life as a young pastor about what it means to be found faithful as a shepherd. As one called to steward the mysteries of God. And we could have started back in verse 1 there of chapter 2 where Paul writes and says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. By the way, part of the essence of discipleship is not merely trying to teach people how to think, but it literally is teaching them what to think, to receive the body of truth, the body of divinity, the body of that which has been handed down through the tunnel of time by the faithful ones who've gone before us. We do not stand isolated or independent of all that has gone before us, but we stand as ongoing witnesses to the marvelous grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so here, in the last letter, Paul would write this side of heaven. He's giving specific instruction to Timothy in dealing with what should keep Timothy motivated, I believe not just as a pastor, 
as important as that is. But as a Christian, and he does it in the most interesting way, beginning there in verse 8, where he says, remember Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Does that seem maybe a little bit odd or, or strange to you? I mean, Timothy is a pastor. He has a responsibility to, to minister the word. He has a responsibility to shepherd the people. And surely, Timothy would know that he always has to remember Jesus, right? I mean, you know, it, it, this seems almost so uh, pedantic. Why would that even need to be put in there? Maybe it's because part of the ways that we get tripped up in the Christian life is not by missing some of the finer points of the most intricate details of theology and philosophy and doctrine, but we maybe miss it when it comes to the most fundamental elements of the faith. And I say that as somebody who is given his life to theological education. I'm president of a seminary, and I can assure you, we love to have the most intricate, complex conversations on all of the richness of theology and doctrine, and, and it, it gives me great joy. But in a sense, that can only happen if the fundamentals are firm. Many of you know the story about that late, great NFL coach Vince Lombardi, for whom, of course, the Super Bowl trophy is named, the Lombardi Trophy, the great uh, coach of the Green Bay Packers who won a number of NFL championships and the first two Super Bowls, and they were played there in the mid to late 1960s. And uh, Lombardi, of course, uh, was well known for his football prowess, but he had this uh, unique tradition, even after his team would win the NFL championship and would be at the top of the world in terms of the highest levels of accomplishment in professional football. When he would break camp the next year, he would meet with his players and he would say, now men, I understand that uh, we've had a lot of accomplishments and we have done a lot of things and we've seen a lot of success, but men, I do not want us to take anything for granted. And he would literally grab a football and hold it up and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, he wasn't doing that because he didn't think that his players knew what that oblong pigskin actually was. But it was to remind his players about where their eyes and where their hands and where their focus always needed to be, where the football is. May I submit to you that it is far too easy even for those of us who are in some form of formal ministry to have our hearts and our minds and our affections and our spirits on something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. That even as a pastor, we can get so busy working for Jesus, doing ministry in his name, all of the things to where we fail to cultivate the richness of our personal relationship, our personal walk, our personal communion with Christ himself. 
And the moment that happens, we begin to open the door for every kind of satanic strategy and scheme to try to take us down. It can happen so easily. We're so busy with all of the demands, with all of the expectations, with all the pressures of life that our, that our quiet time begins to slip. And that's easy to do because, you know, we're getting back into the school season. We've got to get up a little earlier than maybe we were getting up the last couple of months. And we've got more things to do at home. And, you know, uh, it doesn't always go exactly in the morning as we want it to. Things get a little more complicated or complex. And, oh, my goodness, then the day starts going. And, man, we're at our jobs or we're doing the things that we do every day. And we turn around, oh, my goodness, it's noontime. It's time to have lunch. And then we're rolling right along. And, oh, my goodness, 5 o'clock has come. And then it's time to worry about what we're going to do for the rest of the day. And next thing we know, it's 10 o'clock and we're tired. We're ready to go to bed and we've had an entire day where there has been no intentional individual personal communion with Christ and Monday turns to Tuesday Tuesday turns to Wednesday Wednesday turns to Thursday and all of a sudden it's Sunday again what is Paul doing here he's really in a sense asking a probing question and it's a question that that I would have for us is our motivation in the Christian life rooted in our love for the master? In other words, how is our love for the master? Not just what we receive from the table of the master, not just for the things the master will do for us, not just that we can come to God and we can ask him to solve our problems and provide for us and do all the things that he does. Do we care more about the person and work of Christ? than about the benefits we receive from Christ. Is Christ really the end? Or is he just a, a means to our own end? Remember Jesus Christ. And he makes very clear the Jesus he's talking about, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, making it very clear the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, who is the Christ of faith, the one who came in real time, in real space, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the one who has called us to himself in salvation, who has called us into his service. Do we really love him? Because what happens is when we really fall in love with him, He's reproducing his character and his commission within us. And the things that he cares about are the things that we begin to care about. The things that he prioritizes are the things that we begin to prioritize. And when you find hearts like his, you find those who have been and who continue to walk with him. The most important thing that you and I can do on a daily basis is to be personally, vitally connected to the master do we really love him secondly he goes on here in verse uh, 9 according to my gospel for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal this is hardly your best life now kind of stuff 
This is hardly a theology that says, hey, when you trust Jesus, all your problems go away. You're never going to suffer. Everything's going to be A-OK. You just kick back and relax, and all the blessings are going to be yours. He's never going to ask anything from you. Life is never going to be hard or inconvenient or anything like that. No, my friends, that is not the gospel according to Christ. In fact, church history tells us that Paul is literally uh, writing these words in a Roman prison as he is awaiting imminent execution. This is the last letter he would write this side of heaven where if you know Paul's story from his conversion there in Acts 9 and continuing on, shipwreck, imprisonment, false accusation, persecution, beating, trial, tribulation, all that and one of the things that, that is very clear if you read Paul's letters, if you read from chapter 13 on in the book of Acts to chapter 28, what is so clear is Paul could have had a much easier time, a much easier life, humanly speaking, if he just wouldn't have been so serious about getting the message out. You know, if, if he'd have just been a little more you know, lackadaisical, a little more casual about it, not nearly as intentional, not nearly as emphatic, you know, he could have had a much more comfortable life. And yet, with Paul, there is never one hint of hesitation or reservation. Not, not, not one scintilla of compromise when it comes to proclaiming the fullness of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what the cost, no matter what the opposition, no matter what the challenge. Why is that? Because we see when Paul recounts his own testimony, there particularly in Acts 20 and Acts 26, what is he doing? He is testifying that I remember what it was like to be lost. I know exactly how God saved me. I know what difference Christ has made, and I just can't get over it. In other words, his love for the power of the gospel and its ability to change the lives of people, that the message still had power. And, and he just... He was just committed enough to believe that every time he had the chance to proclaim Christ and to share the gospel and to be a witness, God was going to act. And it didn't matter what would come. So as he writes these words, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal for that gospel message. But then he writes, but the word of God is not bound. I may be bound, <laughs> physically imprisoned, chained, but the word of God is not bound. Do we really love the message in such a way to where it comes from us in word and in deed that the word is not bound. 
you know, you look around and you read all of the experts and it's clear that um, all is not well in God-blessed America. Uh, yet again, another major religious census was released a little while ago. And it continues to show so many concerning trends, so many concerning signs. Uh, you know this, the fastest growing religious group today are the unaffiliated, the religious nuns, not N-U-N-S, not the habit-wearing Catholics, but the N-O-N-E-S, the people who say they have no religious preference, no religious opinion. They are growing significantly. As Southern Baptists, we've lost two million members over the last couple of years. And I realize COVID-19 complicated things, but we baptized fewer people this last year than any year in 70 years. Even as our population continues to explode, even as we are seeing literally the nations come to us. My friends who uh, work next door to us at the Tarrant Baptist Association tell me we have over 320 unreached people groups in the North Texas population alone. Alone. Our great city of Fort Worth is now the 12th largest city in the nation, not counting anything to the east of us, just Fort Worth. And the way the statisticians uh, uh, prognosticate things, we're going to continue to grow. The North Texas area is projected to be the fastest growing metro area in the nation for the next decade to come. Nearly 8 million people now call North Texas home and growing. And millions of those people woke up this morning with absolutely no impulse to come anywhere near a church. To, to, to do anything that looks like this. And that number's only growing. Not to mention the fact that there is more adversity towards our convictional commitments culturally today than maybe any time in the history of our country. And I'm not a politician, I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, uh, if you think things are bad now, cheer up. The worst is yet to come. You just pay attention to what's happening legislatively, governmentally, and otherwise. Debates that are being had today that would have been unthinkable even a decade or two ago. And more is coming. If I may be blunt, we had it so good for so long culturally that we got spiritually fat happy and lazy when it comes to our sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And increasingly, those comforts are being stripped away to where it's going to be a more adverse context for us to proclaim Christ and his gospel. But the flip side is, a lot of the veneer of American cultural churchianity is being stripped away, and I believe there is an increasing receptivity and desire for people to be reintroduced to authentic New Testament Christianity. But the only way they're going to hear it and see it is if those of us who know it proclaim it. And that's us. That's us. 
And by the way, it's not just for the super Christians. It's not just for the pastor and the elders and a handful of really significant folks. It's for everybody who names the name of Christ. We are all called to be witnesses for him. Because if the message of the gospel has changed us, then how can we who have received not be those who are willing to share with others? If you'll forgive me, it would be like having not just the 95% vaccine success of COVID-19, but imagine if we had some vaccine or some pill or some solution to the COVID-19 pandemic that was 100% effective without any side effects, any mitigating circumstances, that you take this one time and you are forever free and immune from COVID-19. Imagine if we had the capacity to have something like that and we refused to share it. If we refused to go into every hospital and every hospice care facility, and every place where there are sick and hurting and dying people. If we had the cure and withheld it from them, it would be the cruelest act of negligence on our part. And yet when it comes, as our Lord consistently reminded us, you need to fear more, not just those who can kill the body, but those who can destroy the soul. And even those who may recover from COVID-19, if they are lost, they are doomed in darkness apart from the gospel of Christ, and they still need what we claim we have if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Do we really love the message? But he goes on, and he gets to the heart of the matter, tying all this together. There in verse 10, this is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, this is not a message on election. I'm going to leave that for our pastor, and I'm going to let him decisively and authoritatively opine on these issues. Let me just make a couple of points here that I think are important. Number one, Paul had a more accurate and robust understanding of the biblical doctrine of election than you do. Or than I do. And number two, notice that Paul's understanding of the doctrine of election not only was not a hindrance to his commitment to mission, it was the motivation for his commitment to mission. See that? You notice the language he uses here. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation. There are those who are yet to hear and to believe. And because I know God is still in the business of saving sinners, of reconciling men and women and boys and girls to himself, you know what? I cannot rest until all have heard. His was a missionary theology. His understanding of the richness and robustness of biblical and theological truth 
was what emboldened him and motivated him to fulfill the mission. So please hear me with no uncertain sound in my voice. If you have embraced supposed biblical and theological concepts and constructs that believe somehow give you uh, a get out of the Great Commission free card, that, that give you an excused absence from missions and evangelism, you have embraced a false and unbiblical theology. Period. I don't care what doctrine you want to fixate upon. For Paul, the fact that there were those who have not heard and that there would be those who would hear and who would turn from their sin and would trust Christ because God is at work through the proclamation of the gospel, opening hearts and minds to receive the things of the Lord. Paul would not give up. He would not rest. He would not cease. He would not do anything even at the expense of his own life. That could mean there'd be somebody who would not have a chance to hear and to respond and to believe. That's because he loved the mission more than he loved himself. Do we really love the mission? Do, do we really love the task that God's given to us? See, the, the tragedy of so much of American evangelicalism is we've made salvation and conversion the end goal rather than the entrance point. See, we, we, we've lived with a mindset that says all we've got to do is get people saved. And we just get them saved, we can check the box, go on, and, and we're done. When it, if we understand properly New Testament theology, is literally those who are saved who are immediately those who are sent. They who receive the word go forth and proclaim the word. Those whose lives have been gripped by the gospel go forth and they declare the gospel. Because again, they know what it's like to be lost and they know what it's like to be found. And as long as there are those who are lost who have not yet been found, they realize that the grace that has been extended to them is a grace that needs to be extended to others as well. That's the point that he makes. The witness that he has. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. He, he, Paul just breaks out noxology here. He, he gives on... This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Our God is the faithful one. Our God is the one who keeps his word, keeps his promises. What we have committed to him, we can know he will carry it all the way to the day of completion, of fulfillment, all the way until he calls us home. And what he asks of us, frankly, is very little in light of what all he has done for us.
If we truly have had our sins forgiven, if we've truly experienced the grace of God in salvation, then the Spirit of God dwells within us. And the Spirit of God is always working to reproduce the character and commission of Christ in us, which leads us to this kind of self-examination of asking, do, do our lives look like this? Are, are we motivated because we love the Master? Are we motivated because we love the message? Are we motivated because we love the mission? If there are seasons where you feel unmotivated in the Christian life, where you wonder if it really matters, maybe it's time for a, a checkup. Maybe it's time just to allow the Lord to take the spotlight of heaven and to shine it into your heart and ask the question, what is motivating you? And how can we have a heart like his? Let's pray together. Loving Father, I'm so thankful for these moments together around your word. God, you are so good to us. You are better than we deserve because what we deserve is to be eternally separated from you. But Lord, you've given to us everything. The richness of salvation. Freely given to all who believe. But Father, it's not merely ours to receive. It is ours to share as we go. Father, we realize we live in a city that desperately needs Christ. And Father, it's so easy for us to be overwhelmed at the size and the scale and the scope of lostness around us. But Father, as we study your word, we know that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would just stir within us fresh motivation rooted in a renewing of our love for the master, our love for the message, our love for the mission. And Father God, if there be anyone here this morning or anyone who has watched or will watch this message online who does not know you in a life-changing and saving way, oh God, by the power of your Spirit, may you draw them to that point of repentance and faith, surrender. May they receive Christ. We commit this invitation, this time of response to you. Use it for your glory. Do business in our hearts and lives right here, right now. We pray in Jesus' name.